Hey, all you fraidy cats and kittens. <laughs> I'm Whitley. And I'm Brian. And this is Deathly Afraid. Ooh. <laughs> How was your week this week? We're recording on a Friday again. I know. Life's getting too busy. It's so busy right now. I can't handle it. Between baseball and work and everything else is just crazy it's hard i know huh um anything exciting to tell us not really no no hmm. me neither <laughs> <laughs> since you asked you didn't give me a chance to ask i stared at you for a good amount of time for like one second that was not a good amount of time You still haven't asked. <laughs> How was your week? Oh, you know, it was fine. <laughs> All that build up for nothing. Uh, I don't even know what I did this week. I don't even know what I did yesterday. My week, I felt like I was so tired all week long. Well, I know on Wednesday you went back and forth to Creed's baseball three times. Oh my gosh, that was the worst. My son has baseball practice three days a week. And on Wednesday, I took him to go to practice. And we get all the way to his practice. And he goes to the back of my car. And he goes, Mom, my baseball stuff's not in here. So that's life with a teenager. Yeah, Almost a teenager. Almost. He acts like a teenager. So I had to drive home and drive all the way back to practice. <laughs> And then all the way back to practice and all the way back home. To yeah. When you went to pick him up. Yeah, because Brian's always doing classes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How's your classes? It was good. I got to learn a lot about Ford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah. So, anyway, the usual stuff... If you guys could um, give us a review, uh, like our podcast, follow it. And if you guys could share with some friends, that'd be so cool. Even people that aren't friends. We don't care. We're not picky. That's right. Like I said before, you can throw us on your enemies if you don't like us. Maybe they'll like us. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully somebody does. I like you. I like you too. <laughs> we like each other. That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm first this week, and it's kind of a long one. So buckle up, Buttercup. I'm ready. Are you, though? Sure. I'm not. I'm going to get to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I am doing the Long Island Serial Killer. 
also known as Lisk, or the Gilgo Beach Killer, the Manorville Butcher, or the Craigslist Ripper. I think I heard about that. Like the Craigslist. Probably because, it. I mean, it hasn't been too long. Like, this all started in 2010 when they started finding everything. Yeah. I don't so. think I've heard those other names. I've heard the Craigslist one. but Yeah. So, it's a crazy one. Um, so it's believed that he has murdered between 10 and 18 people, disposing of their bodies on the south shore of Long Island, New York, in a period of almost 20 years. Dang, that's a long time. Yeah. So at 4.51 a.m. on May 1st, 2010, a woman named Shannon Gilbert, a 24-year-old sex worker, called 911, claiming someone is after me. The 911 call lasted about 22 minutes before the call was dropped. Then later, two more 911 calls followed from neighbors whose houses she had ran to for help. Um, on the 911 call, Shannon was extremely difficult to hear. In some parts of the call, there were moments where she would slur her words, and there were others where she just wouldn't even respond to the dispatchers at all. When the dispatcher would ask where she was, she was unsure where she was, and all she knew is that she was on Long Island. At one point, she asked the 911 dispatcher if she could just trace the call, because she had no idea where she was, which was not an option at the time. So, so in the calls, a man's occasionally heard in the background. Shannon's frequently heard saying, please stop. She seems really confused. Um, you can hear banging, possibly some door knocks, and heavy breathing are later heard on the line, along with the voice of the man um, as the dispatcher says, hello, hello, hello. Then this is kind of like the before the phone call. Shannon had gone to a man named Joe's house earlier that night around 2 a.m. with her, um, it's kind of like a bodyguard. She's a sex worker. She's advertising on Craigslist. Yeah. So when she goes to meet these people that, you know, hire her, she brings along this guy. His name's Michael. And so it's kind of like uses him as a bodyguard. Can you imagine being that guy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I can't. So, um... She heads over to Joe's with Michael. Um, Joe had contacted Shannon from a Craigslist ad for to be an escort sex worker. You know, um, she went into the home with Joe while Michael stayed in the SUV. And at one point, Shannon and Joe came out and said they were going to run an errand and be back. And it's believed that, you know, they went to go get drugs, but it's never been confirmed. They came back about 15 minutes later and went back into the house. After a while, Joe comes out to the car and tells Michael that Shannon's freaking out and he needs to go get her out of the house. Basically, she's just out of control. She's acting super weird. When Michael goes into the house to get her, she's acting really weird and like doesn't even want Michael to come around her, you know? Yeah. And she goes and hides behind a couch and calls 911. And that's the 22-minute phone call she made. So she's telling the 911 killers, you know, they're trying to kill me. The 911 killers. <laughs> she called the killers. You tell I them 911 killers. I get ahead of my brain. Like my brain thinks it, but my mouth's like, nope, we're going to be way ahead of you. Oh, uh, goodness. So 
So she goes behind the couch and she calls 911. Joe basically, you know, while she's still on 911, he's over it. He's had enough. And he's like, you know what? Get her out of my house. I'm going upstairs. This is your problem. I'm not dealing with it. Um, so he goes upstairs and then Michael, you know, is continuing to try to get her to leave, but she continues like her call with 911, you know, the killers and telling them that he's trying to kill her. And then Michael finally had it with her and he's like, you know what? Going back outside, I'll wait for you in the car. Yeah. So he goes back out to wait for her. When the 911 call ends, it kind of like cuts out. I don't know if she hung up or they just lost connection. But 514, Shannon runs out of Joe's house and runs past the SUV to a neighbor's house and starts pounding on the door and yelling for help. The man that lived there was named Gus. He told Shannon, you know, there was kind of like he changed the story a few times. Like sometimes he told her, told the police that he let her into the house. And sometimes he told her that she was out on the told her told the police she was out on the doorstep and his story just kind of changed a few times um when he tells shannon you know that he's gonna call the police get her help or whatever it freaks her out she gets scared again takes off um and runs out towards the road but then she sees michael's suv coming down the road so then she turns around runs under gus's boat in his driveway and hides and Michael's kind of doing like a slow drive by and he yells out, sees Gus and yells out to him, you know, have you seen a young girl? We were partying at this house. We're looking for, um, and obviously she's just came to his door freaking out saying someone's trying to kill her and she needs help. Yeah. So he, Gus just responds by telling him, you know, I've called the cops and Michael says, you shouldn't have done that, which is kind of sketchy. Right. Right. So, while they're talking or whatever, doing their thing, um, Shannon takes off from under the boat and runs down the road further into the subdivision. Um, Gus did try to go after her, but couldn't keep up. Um, We know that she stopped at at least one more house because a second, or I guess technically third 911 call was made from another neighbor in the subdivision about this girl freaking out that someone was after her. Um, so police showed up 45 minutes after Gus's phone call. Yeah, that's a long time. And that's not even including her phone call that was 22 minutes long. 22 <laughs> minutes. But they never even connected that to her till months later. Right. They didn't even realize, uh, police were not even dispatched for her phone call. Her first one? Yeah. Dang. Because, you know, she didn't know where she was. They didn't, you know, it was just, well, and then I seen that she had originally told the dispatchers that she was at Jones Beach, but she was actually at Oak Beach. And so that's also why it took them a while to connect it. Okay. So, um, yeah, police showed up 45 minutes after Gus's phone call and Gus meets them at the gate. So it's like a gated community. I forgot to tell you that. So he meets them at the gate and... They don't really even do a thorough search of the subdivision. They don't do much at all. They basically just decide this is a domestic disturbance. And they left. After two separate phone calls of this girl. I mean, 
There was three, but they didn't connect the first one. Yeah. You know, she's running around asking for help, and then they just are like, now we're good. This part freaks me out. Two days later, a man calls her mother and says his name is Dr. Peter Hackett and asked if Shannon is home or if she's still missing. At this point, her family did not even know anything had happened. They did not know she was missing. Yeah. And he's just like, hey, is she there? She's still missing. They're like, what? Yeah. And um, he tells her mom that he runs a house for wayward girls and that he took Shannon in off the streets that night and gave her, you know, some drugs to calm her nerves. And then she got into a car with her driver and left and she never came back. But how did this guy get her mom's number? Right. How did he know she was missing? Yeah. No one had even reported her missing. That's weird. It's crazy. So later that day, her family did officially report her missing. Because then they're like, wait, where is she? Like, Because obviously she did not live with her parents. Yeah. You know, not everybody talks to their parents every day like us weirdos. So they didn't even know. So it was Shannon's disappearance that led police to find nearly a dozen other sets of remains. And most of them were Craigslist escorts who vanished. Dang, that's crazy. Yeah. So, and you'll find out later. I mean, right now, because I was going to tell you later, but now I'm telling you now. Um, They don't even find her body for quite a long time after. Like, they find all these other bodies before they find hers. Dang. Yeah. The Suffolk County Police Department's Missing Persons Bureau asked Officer John Malia to search for Shannon with his trained cadaver dog, which is a German shepherd named Blue. Uh, Malia unsuccessfully searched the gated beach community where Shannon had last been seen. They searched areas along Ocean Parkway near remote beach towns of Gilgo and Oak Beach in Suffolk County. Um, Then on December 11th, 2010, Officer Malia decided he was going to, you know, try a new approach to his search by staying close to the shoulder of the parkways. He based this choice off of like um, some FBI data that he's seen saying that normally dumped bodies are frequently found close to roadways. Hmm. Um, Blue alerted a scent which the pair tracked to a skeleton in a disintegrating burlap sack. The remains were later identified as Malitha, Malitha. (laughs) Melissa. <laughs> As Melissa Bartholomew. Uh, police discovered three additional bodies after they found her in the same area. When they were searching the scene, the bodies of the four victims are Breen Brainerd, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. They were dubbed the Gilgo Four and found within like a quarter mile of each other on Gilgo Beach. Nice. Yeah. So after that, six more sets of remains were found in March and April of 2011 in Suffolk and Nassau. Nassau? I'm going to say Nassau. What do you think? It's Nassau, but. Is it Nassau? I think so. Have you been there? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You call it what you will. 
Suffolk and Nassau counties, police believed these sets of remains were actually older than the four initial bodies that they found. So, like, they had been dead longer. It's just crazy. Yeah. In March of 2011, partial remains of Jessica Taylor were found alongside Ocean Parkway eight years earlier in 2003. Other parts of Taylor's remains had been found in Manorville, a town in Suffolk County. So they found partial in 2011, they found partial remains of this girl. Eight years earlier, they had already found other parts of this girl. So she was like spread out. Yeah. That's weird. Like dumped in different places. In April of 2011, police discovered three additional sets of remains, an unidentified female toddler, an unidentified Asian person, and Valerie Mack. So these, that's the three people. So Valerie Mack, partial remains found, and then other parts of her had been found in Manorville in November of 2000. Dang. So, and like you see before, this Jessica Taylor... Part of her was in Manorville, and then the other part was elsewhere. Yeah, Ocean Parkway, sorry. <laughs> it's just crazy that there's like, we'll put the bottom half here, and we'll put the top half over here. <laughs> the top part. The top. This guy is so effed up. He calls the head the top part. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John Mulaney, for my jokes. Two more bodies were found in Nassau County. An unidentified woman whose partial remains had previously been found on Fire Island in 1996 and an unidentified woman with a distinctive tattoo of peaches who was later found to be the mother of the unidentified toddler found in Suffolk County. Wow. Yeah. Um, then on November 29th of 2011, police announced that they believed one person to be responsible for all 10 of these murders and that the perpetrator is almost certainly from Long Island. So Shannon's remains were found over a year after the remains of the Gilgo four were discovered. That's insane. Right. So this whole time they were looking for her and Finding they found bodies. all these other bodies. Like right. they had no idea what they were going into. Um, Her cause of death actually kind of remains con- contested between police and stuff. Um, Police are claiming, you know, it was an accidental drowning and there was an ind- independent autopsy that determined that it was possible strangulation. So and where she's running around asking for help. Probably not. Probably not an accidental drowning, but who knows? So I'm going to tell you about some of these victims. Okay, so first is Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She was 25 when she disappeared. She was last seen on July 9th, 2007. Um, she said she had planned to spend the day in New York City, and then she was never seen again. She was a mother of two and worked. As a paid escort via Craigslist. Um, She did that to pay her mortgage on her house. And she had been actually been out of the sex industry for about seven months. But returned back to it. She had gotten like an eviction notice. Shortly after her disappearance, a friend of Marine named Sarah Kearns received a phone call from a man on an unfamiliar number. The man claimed that he had just seen Marine and that she was alive and staying at a whorehouse in Queens. 
The man refused to identify himself and could not tell Carnes of the location of the house. He told her that he would call back and give her the address, but he never called again. She said the man had no discernible New York or Boston accent. So at the time of Maureen's disappearance, she was working at a Super 8 motel in Manhattan. On the night of July 9th, 2007, she called a friend in Connecticut and told her that she was planning on meeting a client outside of the motel. Uh, Maureen was very petite. She was 4'11 and 105 pounds. Um, which Teeny tiny. Yeah, super tiny. And you'll find out all these women are super petite women. Um, and her cause of death was she was strangled. So next is Melissa Bartholomew. She was 24 years old when she went missing on July 12, 2009. Um, she had been living in the Bronx in New York and was working as an escort through Craigslist. What? Dun, dun, dun. Um, on the night she went missing, she met with a client, deposited $900 into her bank account, and attempted to call an old boyfriend, but did not get through. A week after she disappeared, and for five more weeks, her teenage sister, Amanda, received a series of vulgar, mocking, and insulting calls from a man who may have been the killer and was using Melissa's cell phone. The caller asked if Amanda was a whore like her sister. The calls became increasingly disturbing and eventually ended in the caller telling Amanda that her sister was dead and that he was going to watch her rot. So she was 4'10 and 95 pounds. Jeez. Right? She was also strangled. Are these girls like see-through? Right? <laughs> <They're> <laughs> like, short and skinny. I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I'm 5'3", but I'm definitely not close to any of those weights. <laughs> um... So, the next victim is Megan Waterman. She was 22 when she went missing on June 6th of 2010. That's my birthday. I know, huh? I thought of that when I put the little date on there. I was like, oh, it's Brian. Sad she went missing, though. You know, you were partying it up. You're so insensitive. <laughs> I'm mad, guys. Um, so, she placed some advertisements on Craigslist as an escort. And the previous day, she had told her 20-year-old boyfriend that she was going out and would call him later. She was a mother of one and had become the victim of sex trafficking, which is super sad. Yeah. Um, Megan was actually taller. She was 5'5". Five five. I don't know how much she weighed. I didn't put that in there, apparently. But um, she was also strangled. Next is Amber Lynn Costello. She was 27 when she disappeared. She was a sex worker and a heroin user. She went missing on September 2nd of 2010. Um, the night she went missing, she went to meet a stranger who had called her several times and offered her $1,500 for her services. Hey, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. But I still don't know if I could do it. Probably. I mean, I know like, I'm not looking down on people. I'm just saying me personally, I couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, her family believed she was in a residential drug rehabilitation center. So they did not know she was missing. Um, 
when she stopped responding to messages and phone calls is when they started to realize something was going on. Um, she was 4'11 and weighed approximately 100 pounds. She was also strangled. Now we have Valerie Mack, 24 years old when she went missing. She was also known as uh, Melissa Taylor. She was living in Philadelphia and worked as an escort when she went missing in 2000. Um, her partial remains were discovered in Manorville on November 19th, 2000. But they were not identified until 2020. Dang, that's a long time for her family to be like, what happened? Right. So her torso was found wrapped in garbage bags and then dumped in the woods near the intersection of Halsey Manor Road and Mill Road. The head, right foot, and hands found on April 4th, 2011 were at first determined to have belonged to an unidentified victim dubbed as Jane Doe number 6, but it was later determined that they belonged to the same woman whose torso had been found in 2000. So, May 28th of 2020, police announced that the remains had finally been identified as Valerie Mack, who had last been seen by family members in the spring or summer of 2000. That's just crazy. So, 20 years later, they finally had an answer. can't imagine losing someone and then, I mean, even just losing them in general, but having to wait that long to find out that they're right not coming back yeah could you imagine though like to the i don't know why this bothers me so bad but could you imagine just finding a torso no that would like yeah i don't know why i don't like it i mean obviously i know why i don't like it but it's just i don't know (sighs) okay so then Next is Jessica Taylor. She was 20 years old when she went missing on July 21st of 2003. On July 26, 2003, her naked and dismembered torso, missing its head and hands, was discovered 45 miles east of Gilgo Beach in Manorville. So um, the torso was found on top of a pile of scrap wood at the end of a paved access road off Halsey Manor Road. Which I think the other one said Halsey Manor Road, too. Yeah, yeah. they both were. So, same area. Um, plastic sheeting was found underneath the torso, and a tattoo on her body had been mutilated with a sharp instrument, thinking like that he was trying to not make them identify. I mean, they took yeah. the hands, the head, mutilated the tattoo. They didn't want him to be identified. On April 11, 2011, Police in Nassau County discovered dismembered skeletal human remains inside a plastic bag near Jones Beach State Park. The victim was called Jane Doe number three. DNA analysis later positively indicated that the human remains belonged to a woman whose torso had been found in Hempstead Lake State Park 14 years earlier. Dang. On June 28th of 1997. The dismembered torso of an unidentified young African-American woman was found in Hempstead Lake State Park in the town of Lakeview, New York. The torso was found in a green plastic Rubbermaid container, which was dumped next to a road along the west side of the lake. 
Investigators reported that the victim had a tattoo on her left breast of a heart-shaped peach with a bite out of it and two drips falling from its core. So December of 2016, Peaches, as they called her, or Jane Doe number three, she was positively identified as being the same person. So Jane Doe number three is what they had before, and then they found this, the rest of her. Um, And she was also the mother of the baby, the toddler that they had found. And they were both wearing gold jewelry that were similar to each other. Okay, so then a third set of remains, which were the skeleton of the female toddler, which is the baby we just talked about, um, between 16 and 24 months of age, was found on April 4th, 2011. It was about 250 feet away from the partial remains of Valerie Mack. The body was wrapped in a blanket and showed no visible sign of trauma. DNA tests determined that the child's mother was Jane Doe number three, or Peaches, whose body was found 10 miles east near Jones Beach. The toddler was reported to be African-American and was wearing gold earrings and a gold necklace. like her. Then next is the John Doe, which was the only male found in this area. It was an unidentified Asian male. He had died from blunt force trauma. So he was discovered on April 4th, 2011 at Gilgo Beach. It was very close to where the first four sets of remains had been discovered in December. The victim was found wearing women's clothing. He was between 17 and 23 years old. He was five foot six inches tall. Um, He was missing four teeth and may have had a musculoskeletal disorder, which would have affected his gait. Um, And then the last one I have is... Jane Doe number seven, a human skull and several teeth were recovered on April 11th, 2011 at Tabay Beach. These remains were linked through DNA testing to a set of severed legs found in a garbage bag on Fire Island 15 years earlier on April 20th of 1996. Jane Doe number seven's remains were the second set to be discovered in Nassau County on April 11th, 2011. Um, Jane Doe number seven had a surgical scar on her left leg. So, do you want to know about the suspects that have come up? Yeah. Okay. John Bitteroff, a Suffolk County resident, was convicted of murdering two prostitutes and suspected in the murder of a third. He was a suspect in at least one of the Lisk murders, and there were similarities between the Gilgo Beach crime scene and the Bitterolf's known murders, for which he was convicted in May of 2017. He was arrested in 2014 after his DNA was found on two murdered women, Rita Tangredi and Colleen McNamee, whose bodies were found in 1993 and 1994. The match had been made through DNA submitted by his brother, who was convicted in 2013 in an unrelated case. So, and then he actually lived in Manorville where some of the partial remains were discovered. It was just three miles away from where the torsos from the Lisk victims were. Um, Bitterolf was a hunter who was said to enjoy killing animals, which there's a lot of hunters that right. that's, I mean, 
If they didn't enjoy it, they wouldn't do it. I enjoy it, but I'm not going to go kill a bunch of prostitutes because of it. Right? So I kind of was like, well, I don't know if that convinces me that you're a murderer, but... (laughs) You like to hunt and provide for your family. You've got to be a murderer. Um, He was also a carpenter by trade, and he had access to hacksaws and electric saws. So... So, the grown daughter of Rita Tangredi, who was murdered by Petrov, Petrolov, was also the best friend of Melissa Bartholomew, who you remember is one of the victims, yeah. from the Gilgo Beach victims. Bartholomew's mother said that her daughter, Melissa, had a lot of calls to Manorville from her phone before her death. So, this guy was a victim. Never came to it. A victim. Suspect. (laughs) Pray and help me, good Lord. I can't even today. I can't even any day, but here we are. Okay, so next up we got Joseph Brewer. He is an Oak Beach resident. He was one of the last people known to have seen Shannon Gilbert alive. He hired her as an escort from Craigslist on the night of her disappearance. He said that shortly after Shannon arrived at his residence, she began acting erratically and fled his home. Shannon was reportedly seen running through Oak Beach, pounding on the doors of homes in Brewer's neighborhood. So, basically, he was the last one to see her. And police did not find any evidence of wrongdoing on his part, and he was quickly cleared as a suspect. Okay, so the next um, suspect, I about said victim, but I caught myself. (laughs) (laughs) The next suspect is James Burke. He was a former Suffolk County police chief. He was reported to have blocked an FBI probe of the Lisk case during his time as police chief. In November of 2016, Burke was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison for assault and conspiracy. Burke violently assaulted a man in custody who had stolen a duffel bag from his police vehicle. The duffel bag contained sex toys and pornographic DVD, snuff, and Viagra. Um, Shannon Gilbert's family reported that an escort had stated she suspected that Burke might be connected to the Lisk cases. The escort, who identified herself as Leanne, stated that At one party she had attended in April of 2011 in Oak Beach, she had seen Burke drag a woman of Asian appearance by the hair to the ground. Leanne said when she saw Burke at a later party in August of 2011, she decided to engage in sexual activity with him. She described an experience in which Burke violently yanked at her head during oral sex and to the point where she began to tear up. Burke was unable to reach orgasm and proceeded to throw $300 to $400 at her afterwards. At the time, she was not a professional prostitute, and she stated that was her first time ever being paid for sex. So, um, but obviously, nothing ever came of that. Now, you remember Peter Hackett, the doctor? Yeah. Okay, so he's our next one. Peter Hackett, he was actually a neighbor of Joseph Brewer. So, Joe. Um, He was a former physician who had worked for Suffolk County as a police surgeon. He called Shannon's mom, Mary, and 
she later recounted that he had told her, you know, he was taking care of Shannon and that he ran the home for wayward girls and he had given her medication because she was distressed. Three days later, after the initial phone call, Peter calls Mary and denies ever have even called her before ever having contact with her daughter at all. So investigators later confirmed through phone records that he did call her twice following um, Shannon's disappearance. The marshy area where Shannon was found was actually near his backyard and her personal items and clothing were found directly behind his property in the marsh. So, I mean, he seems very suspicious. Yeah. Later... Um, police actually revealed that this guy had a history of just kind of inserting himself into situations or just like exaggerating his role of certain events just to kind of like feel like he's important. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they actually ended up ruling him out as a suspect in the death. So, so then another victim is James Bissett. Do you want to visit me? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. James Bissett. Two days after Shannon's remains were found, businessman James Bissett died by suicide in his car at Mattituck Park. One of Bissett's businesses was a plant nursery, which was the main supplier of burlap in the region, which many of the victims were found wrapped in burlap. Also, kind of felt like they didn't I don't know they kind of pulled that one out it was like oh we found her remains and then this guy killed himself yeah. he's got to be the guy he knows how to get burlap you know what I mean like yeah. I don't know that one just seemed a little bit odd to me but so to this day the murders remain unsolved and we do not know who the Long Island serial killer is so that's my story son it was very hard to get out of my mouth. It was. It was, it was almost very an hour. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, well, the good thing is, I will tell I'm... my story next week, guys. Right. When we have more time. <laughs> <laughs> See, mine could be five minutes, and I'll be fine. We'll be at an hour. <laughs> right. Well, there's a lot I got to cut out of that, son. So, I told you it was a big one, though. Yeah. Tell me your story, please. I will tell you my story. Thank you. So my story this week is on the devil's rocking chair. Ooh. Yeah. We watched the episode about that. What was that? So I think it was one of Lennon's YouTube videos that he watches of the people, those kids that went to Zach Bagan's museum where it currently resides. Yeah. Okay. I remember now. So yeah, I didn't really know much about this until... We watched that with Lennon and then kind of got intrigued by it and wanted to learn more about its history and where it came from and how Zach Bagans came about getting it. So, All right, tell me about it. So the Devil's Rocking Chair appears to be a seemingly normal-looking rocking chair that belonged to the Glatzel family, but it has been known to cause many paranormal and unexplained things to happen to those unfortunate to sit in it or even be in its vicinity. 
The history of this object and its first owner is a mystery, however, we do know that it became owned by the Glatzel family around the 1950s. Any particularly strange activity went unnoticed for the first 30 years that the family owned the chair. This was until a traumatizing event took place which tore everything apart. Two of the Glatzel family members were possessed by a demonic force that inflicted murder upon the family. The story leads back to the chair, which is believed to be the cursed object responsible for these tragic events. So, two family members went crazy, killed people, and then they're like, it was the chair. So, uh, the stories I'm going to tell are about the possessions that took place from this chair. But only one of the family members murdered one person. Oh, okay. But, okay. So, the first possession that took place was of David Glatzel. He was 11 years old at the time, and he was the first to become possessed by this evil spirit. It was a summer night in 1980 when David awoke in a terror and was screaming the house down. He told was what? Screaming, like, just really loud where everybody could hear him. But... Screaming the house down. Yeah. That's my kids every day. So he told his family that he had seen a ghostly figure during the night. He described what he had witnessed to be a man who was part animal with horns and hooves and a thin gaunt face with spiky teeth. If this was any other child, you may overlook this claim as just a bad dream. However, David was an honest child. He was terrified of anything slightly spooky and he was clearly traumatized by what he witnessed. David was not the same after this night. He became entirely socially withdrawn and disconnected from the rear world. Rear? Rear. <laughs> he was traumatized I'm by the rear. i over you. So, David was not the same after this night. He became entirely socially withdrawn and disconnected from the real world. His sister, Debbie, was particularly concerned for his well-being and kept a close eye on her brother. As the nights went on, David had recurring dreams of the scary man. This progressed to physical evidence. David would regularly wake up covered in bruises and strange markings that must have happened whilst he was sleeping. It became unbearable when he started seeing the man during the daytime. They now referred to it as the beast. The evil spirit of the beast became so powerful that David started to feel as if he was the beast. The beast's favorite spot was in the rocking chair. Family reported seeing the chair empty, but slowly rocking back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, David could see this creature, but the family family couldn't. couldn't. They could just see the rocking chair, like, rocking back and forth. That's creepy. Right? So, the Glatzel family had no choice but to invite a priest to the house and attempt to banish any evil spirits. <laughs> That's it. We have no choice. We got to get the priest. <laughs> right? <laughs> we didn't want it to come so, to this. This only seemed to aggravate the spirit. David had more frequent visions and began screaming at his family in unrecognizable voices. He also spoke in Old English. They took turns in watching him during the night to keep him under control. Also, as a health precaution, as he had multiple episodes of seizures. Ed and Lorraine Warren were the next paranormal professionals to visit the Glatzel home. The pair worked with priests to perform exorcisms on David, often whilst he sat in the rocking chair. 
The Warrens <laughs> have testified to seeing the chair move by itself and even levitate on occasion in plain sight. Hmm. And they also said, too, like, this chair would, like, disappear from one room and, like, end up in, like, different rooms throughout the house. Oh, that's weird as hell. Yeah. So huh. it was kind of crazy. And after many exorcisms, the devil was extracted from David's body, and he had control over himself once again. The family felt as though they were finally free of this demonic force, but this feeling did not last very long, unfortunately. The fiancé of David's sister, Arnie Johnson, began acting very odd and was not himself at all. They came to the conclusion that the demon had entered Johnson's body, he would hiss and have visions just like David once did. Johnson's possession was much more intense and he got extremely out of hand. He was so out of control that he resulted in murdering his landlord, which he did in front of his fiance. Oh. Yeah. So he brutally stabbed him repeatedly. His fiance witnessed the whole thing. Johnson claimed in court that he was not responsible for his actions due to being under demonic possession. The court overlooked his plea, and he was sentenced to prison, Good. which was supposed to be, I think it was like a 20-something year sentence. Oh. So anyway, Johnson only ended up serving five years before being released, and as soon as he was free, he married Debbie, because she knew about She knew about the, the devil in him? Because like, it was she in her brother. She liked that little and... devil in him, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, he ends up marrying her when he gets out. Despite the horrific events, the Glassell family held on to the rocking chair even when they moved houses. The strange activity never completely stopped. Anyone who sat in the chair would suffer the consequences, such as excruciating back problems, which would send them to the hospital. The that sucks. Back pain hurts so bad. Right? Well, like, a lot of what I read, too, even, like, people that see it now or, like, get close to it or whatever end up like having back pain like back issues even if they hadn't had it before really yeah it'd be screwed right <laughs> me too so the chair is still protected to this day it is held at the haunted museum the demonic spirits supposedly be supposedly the demonic spirits supposedly remain surrounding the chair the museum workers have reported suspicious happenings since its arrival. Visitors are warned to enter at their own risk. They're what? Warned? Warned to okay. enter at their own risk. So the family held on to the chair for many years after these strange events, even though anyone who sat in the chair would suffer such excruciating back pain or sciatica problems that it would send them to the hospital, some requiring surgery. Wow. In April of 2019, Zach Bagans purchased the chair from David's brother and placed it in his haunted museum. And I found out he bought that chair for $67,000. Holy shit. Yeah. Why? I don't know. It's like he paid a buttload of money for that Dybbuk box, too. It's like... Oh, my gosh. But if you think about it, that museum's got to make so much money. Right. Well, between that and his show and everything. So, people soon began breaking into uncontrollable sobbing in view of the chair, and one person had collapsed near the chair on the stairs. So, I guess, like, the stairs... We haven't been there, of course, but... Right. From the way this is described, there's chairs or something that go 
chairs. There's stairs that go by the chair some way, and somebody had collapsed mm. on the stairs. Well, like, remember when we watched that video with Lennon? It was almost like underneath the stairs. I think so that, then yeah, the I stairs came it, around it and then up above it. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, a person collapsed near the, near the chair on the stairs. It is believed that the chair yeah. is also responsible for doors closing on their own and lights turning on and off in the museum. Weird. Yeah. And so... um. Sometimes, though, do you think that they have that stuff rigged up so just to scare people? Yes and no. Um, like, just get that extra little. I mean, I can see it, but at the same time, like, a lot of this stuff makes sense right. as to why it's happening. Right. Uh, so, I listened to, it's called Paran- Paranormal Punchers, is a new podcast that I found. And I, I listened to their episode on the Devil's Rocking Chair today. And they actually talked more about, I guess, Fagans and his friend were at Zach's house. And he, like, they just started, they felt like this evil tension in the room. Mm-hmm. And I guess him and Zach started, like, fighting and, like, words and stuff. And then, like, they got, like, super sick and his friend left. And, like, they think it's because of, like, the chair. So the chair was at his house? No. But they're saying, like, they believe that the spirit, like, (laughs) followed them to his house or something. Could you imagine being Zach Bagans and be like, oh, sorry, man. Sorry I was a douche. My new item that I just got, it made me do it. Right. (laughs) A lot of excuses. Right. I just got this box in. It's a real (laughs) bitch. But apparently it got, like, so bad with people, like, getting sick and all the uncontrollable... Like, what did I say, weeping from his, like, customers and stuff at the museum. I think he ended up closing, like, the exhibit, like, three months after he got it. Oh, really? I mean, I guess it sounds like now it's reopened and everything because of all the stuff we're seeing online. Right. But, yeah, so for, like, I mean, it's crazy that only in three months there was so much crap happening having this chair there that, he had to close it down for a while, and yeah, which I mean, I mean, it's good for business. Yeah, well, in that episode <laughs> that we saw, I mean, you seen what had happened with when they sat in the chair and the yeah. communication with the ghost and yeah, everything. So I actually, from that podcast, she read this review from somebody who had visited Zach Bagan's museum, and a lot of the stuff is. Kind of freaky. I'm not going to read the whole review because there's a lot that doesn't have anything to do with stuff that I'm talking about. But So it's from 256 Regina M. I believe it was in 2021. It was everything I expected and more. This place is very interesting and had more than I was expecting. The wait was minimum about 20 minutes. There wasn't hardly anybody there. I guess we came on a good day. The rooms were filled with all kinds of creepy oddities and celebrity and serial killer memorabilia, including some ashes from Charles Manson. I took my husband with me, who was a non-believer, and he came out a believer at the end of the tour. He was deeply affected by the museum, and he became very nauseous and broke out in sweats, and he became very nervous to be there. 
He started feeling bad and almost quit the tour. And when we were viewing the devil's rocking chair, he said something touched him on the neck. We did the VIP tour and were able to go to the basement where supposedly a child was murdered during a devil worshipping ritual. Down there is a non-stop EVP going and as soon as we went down it said our daughter's name which is Maddie twice. Oh, Maddie. Maddie. Shout out to Maddie. <laughs> we told no one our kids names or even talked to anybody about our kids. That would be crazy. Could you right. imagine it just be like, Brandon, greed. I'd be like, uh, It'd probably be more crazy. <laughs> I'd be like, bye. <laughs> but no. Um, what, so mean, when he was by the chair, he said someone touched him? Yeah, he said it felt like something touched him. That's crazy. Yeah. Which I think in that YouTube video we watched with Lennon, I think it was, was it one of the girls that said she felt like something touched her, or was that in the basement? Oh, I mean, the chair's in the basement, right? Or no, it's no, not it's in the not basement. basement. You're right. Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't remember. I do remember them saying something touched him, though. Yeah, even that the kid to sit in that devil's rocking chair is just, you couldn't pay me enough money to sit in that thing. I think I would probably sit in it. Really? Yeah. They become possessed and kill somebody. That would not be good. When I was in the third grade, everybody treated me like I was a criminal. Because I killed somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you just said that I was going to be a killer and that's all I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> but That would be fun to go to the museum and He's got a lot of interesting stuff there that would be cool to see. Yeah. I'd probably lose my shit, though, if something... I felt like something touched me and nobody was around. Right. Yeah, I would... Yeah, that would scare you. I'd probably carry, like, a long thing to just touch you with. Like could, a little feather. Yeah. Tickle my ear or something. <laughs> tickle you with a feather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I told you to leave that at home. <laughs> <Just joking. laughs> but anyway, that was my story this week. I liked it. The devil's rocking chair. Yeah. The devil wears Prada. In the rocking chair. Ooh. <laughs> oh. All right. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. I have a lot of editing to do because I sounded like a crazy person. <laughs> she can't do words. I can't do words. It's like, apparently I can't read out loud. In my head, it sounds great. It sounds <laughs> fantastic. But as soon as I try to read them out loud, it's like, nope. <laughs> uh, so, all right. Well, share, rate, review. Like, comment. Follow us on Instagram. Send in your stories. You didn't even let me tell them our Instagram. Sorry. Follow us on Instagram at Deathly Afraid Podcast. And send in your stories to deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com. Subject, user stories. <laughs> I'm a user. Listener stories. And you can also follow our Facebook group. Deathly Afraid Podcast. What? <laughs> <laughs> and so it continues. And I'm not even reading these. This is just my brain. So, all right.
I'm done. Are you done? I'm done. Bye. Bye.